I want to start by trying to clarify something that I gather I've confused lots of you over with my uh, little mantra of life after life after death. Has that confused you? Sorry. Let me try and get a little bit of clarity for you, I hope. Here's a little diagram. Life after life after death, or if you're mathematical, L after L after D. So you saw the timeline there, there's this life, that's, that's what you're living at the moment, isn't it? And unless a bus runs you over tonight, that's what you'll keep living tomorrow. But this life will finish, unless Christ returns early, uh, with death, you will die physically. And for Christians, there is then life after death, some form of existence which isn't physical. Often that's called, or we think of it as being in heaven with Christ, uh, if you're c- confused about that or interested in what's often called the intermediate state, uh, there will be uh, some electives tomorrow, at least one of them, that will address that. Please go and, and, and listen and see what you can find out. But then there's the resurrection. When Christ returns and we're resurrected to physical, eternal life, that's life after, life after death. Is that clear? That makes sense. And what I'm saying is that as the the Bible talks about the hope of Christians, what we're looking forward to, what God has promised, it's not life after death. It's life after, life after death. That's what we look forward to. It's the resurrection in the new creation, the age to come. That's what Christ came to inaugurate. That's what God has promised. That is the hope of Christians. That's what we long for, anticipate and look forward to. And we'll see that again even in the passage today. The the bit life after death is a little bit ambiguous and not particularly attractive. It's the intermediate bit before the real thing. So I hope that's just been a bit clarifying for you. Okay, let's think about raised with Christ. I've got a question for you. Have you figured out yet who you are? I don't mean what your name is. I mean, you got a name tag that told you who you were. Hope you've still got the same name tag. Your name hasn't changed. But I'll ask it this way. Are you that nice, considerate person? Or are you that nasty, vindictive person? Because my guess is both of those people show up occasionally, don't they? Sometimes you're that nice, considerate person and sometimes you're the opposite. Which is the real you? We're encouraged to have the courage to be authentic. And that seems intuitively right, doesn't it? To be authentic is is the right thing to do. After all, who wants to be a fake? Who wants to be a hypocrite? And so the slogans abound. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. You do you. It's every Disney movie, every Pixar movie, every Hollywood rom-com. That's the theme, isn't it? Don't be what others want you to be. You be you. Don't conform. Resist oppression. Resist institutions. Only you can decide who you are. Society can't do it. Your family shouldn't do it. Religion shouldn't do it. Look inside yourself to work out who you are. Now, technically, that idea is called expressive individualism. Come across that title? Maybe not. But whether you like it or not, that, that's, that's the air you breathe. That's the river you swim in. Because that is Western culture at the moment. Now, your culture might not be that. You might have come from other cultures that are quite different. And that's helpful for you because there's some difficulties with expressive individualism that I want to talk about. 
Expressive individualism is that idea that only you decide who you are. And who you are is to be expressed, not suppressed. Come out and be who you are. Express it. And if you think that way, which most of us do, just intuitively, it makes identity the most important question of my life. Have I resolved yet who I am? And the promise is that happiness is to be found in that authenticity, in that free expression of my heart, to liberate the feelings and the desires that are sort of shackled by others and shackled by structures in society and just let it out. It's a very intoxicating promise. But it's got some obvious downsides, hasn't it? Because if I've got the freedom to create my own identity and, and that really matters, that's a very heavy burden to carry. I've got to work out who I am and if I don't get it right, I'll probably live a pretty inauthentic life. It, that creates huge anxiety for many people. And it's inherently unstable. because we're choosing where our identity by by the way we feel, by what we think will make us happy. And so I choose one and I try it for a little while and if I don't feel quite happy enough and I see another one over there that maybe will help me feel a bit more happy, well, maybe I'll try that one for a little while. Do you see the instability of it? And what about if I actually care what other people think about me and I decide that I will meet other people's expectations rather than just let out whatever I feel? Isn't that the authentic me? The authentic me is the one who wants to uh, comply with other people's expectations. So I want to step back just for a few minutes and ask about expressive individualism because although it's probably the air you've grown up with, what you just breathe, it's not the only option on the table. If you've grown up in a, uh, a First Nation culture in Australia, it certainly isn't what you think is normal or intuitive. And it's helpful to remember, or if you don't know it, to learn that expressive individualism is actually quite a new and novel idea in Western culture. Uh, I've recently uh, finished reading a book by a Christian guy called Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And it, what he does is he, he tries to just explore the, the history of ideas. How did we get to the point of expressive individualism? He goes back about 300 years in Western culture and he says at that point, if you just read what people are saying, how people thought about themselves was very different. So 300 years is 1721 according to my maths. That's about right, is it? How do people think about themselves? Well, firstly, they thought about themselves mainly physically. What I do and where I live, that, that's me. You know, I, I come from Perth and I, I work as an engineer. That, that's my identity. And it's relational. Who I am is determined by my family and the class I'm part of and the, the, the village I might be part of. And the orientation of my, uh, my identity is outward looking. I, 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 uh, I face the world with my identity. The aim, interestingly, is primarily conformity. I will be what others expect me to be. My family, my society... Uh, my peers. And happiness is found by contributing to my family and to society. Now, expressive individualism looks at that and says, yuck, <laughs> who wants to be that? I don't want to be that. And so 2021, 
Where is our identity? Well, it's primarily psychological, not physical. It's how I feel inside me. And it's very much individual, it's not corporate, it's just me, myself and I. The orientation is inward looking. I I look inside me to see who I am. I don't let others define me. And I express who I am out to the world. The aim is authenticity. Be true to myself. And what makes you happy is free self-expression. You see, they're very vastly different, aren't they? If you were born 300 years ago, you would think entirely differently to how you think today, given the culture you're part of. And Truman does a helpful thing. He, he says, how did we get here? How did it change so much in that period of time? Uh, and there are lots of factors. Technology is certainly one. The Industrial Revolution moved people from uh, their rural things into urban. It, it disrupted the family and the extended family. The Digital Revolution, has, where we're all connected in different sort of ways to how we used to be connected, have had their hand. But Truman goes back to three principal thinkers of the last 300 years and lays some of the responsibility on them. Here's his summary. To follow Rousseau is to make identity psychological. Don't know who Rousseau is. He was a French philosopher, um, sociologist uh, in the late 1700s. Um, And he basically said, listen, all of us... It's by, we're defined by our feelings. We're just blank slates and we can determine who we are by thinking about and getting in touch with our feelings and, and that's quite fluid. And then 100 or so years later, Freud came along, introduced psychoanalysis and Freud's great contribution was that he, he thought that the driver of how we feel is fundamentally sexual. It might be unconscious. If you know anything about Freud, there's the unconscious id and all that sort of stuff. It's very unconscious, but it's all to do with sexuality. Sexual desire and fulfilment is the core of feeling. And so Freud made psychology and identity sexual. And then Marx, Karl Marx, his basic thesis is that all of life is political. It's the struggle between the oppressed and the oppressors. So identity must be publicly asserted against all who might suppress my identity. He makes it political. And that's really expressive individualism. It's in that, uh, that sort of situation that we can say things like, I'm a man in a woman's body, and that makes sense. In 1721, that statement would not make any sense at all. People would just say, what on earth do you mean? And yet now it just makes almost logical sense, doesn't it? That's a reasonable thing to say. Now, Rousseau, Freud and Marx are all totally discredited academically. Nobody believes what they taught now. You go to school of psychology at your university and try and find a Freudian, you won't be able to find one. But somehow what they taught and the effects of it have continued on in our culture. It's like they're huge towers that that the shadows from them still uh, cast over us. And that's created a context in which expressive individualism and what's called critical theory are flourishing, in which deplatforming a paediatrician who thinks the current medical treatments for children suffering from gender dysphoria might be dangerous happened at UWA a couple of years ago. Now, I'm not, returning, uh, 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 not advocating a return to 1721, 
But it's just to give us some historical perspective, to alert us of the novelty of what we now take for granted. And to see some potential positives and negatives with both poles, with both ideas. And I hope open our minds to hear what God says about the identity God gives us in his love for us. Because God may just know a a thing or two about what makes humans flourish. So, sort of back on track. Jesus, me and Jesus. Firstly, it's helpful to think biblically that our bodies are part of our identity. Our true and restored identity is found in relationship with Jesus, and that includes my body, because my destiny is resurrection of my body. So my body is actually essential to my identity. Without my body, I'm not really me. And 1 Corinthians 6, an interesting passage we haven't looked at in any of the seminars, but it's a passage that that works on that idea and helps helps, uh, explain some of the implications of it. What he says is, food's for the stomach, stomach for food, God will destroy one, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So our, our bodies are meant for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And God, by his power, who raised the Lord, will raise our bodies too. My destiny as a resurrected person tells me that my body is part of my essential identity. You are your body. Not merely your body, but not less than your body. You're an integrated person, physical and psychological, outer and inner, body and mind. And that has important implications for things like gender identity. Because what we've done in recent years under expressive individualism, we've detached gender from biological sex. Gender is what I feel. I feel like a man or I feel like a woman. And that doesn't necessarily correlate to and shouldn't necessarily correlate to my biological sex, to the chromosomes that inhabit every cell in my body. And they should be independent from one another. And then if there's any tension, if I feel like, well... Yeah, I know my body's male, but I feel like a woman. Well, it's the psychological that wins, that trumps the biological. But God says he created us to be in harmony for the body and mind, for the feelings and the outside, to actually be correlated. In the resurrection, you will still be a male or a female. Jesus was still a man when he was resurrected. I'll be Tim, I'll be a man. If you're a woman, you will be a woman. That's an indelible part of your identity. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that gender dysphoria, that that feeling that uh, they don't correlate properly and and the the angst that that might create isn't real. Yes, it is real. And I expect it to happen in a fallen and broken world. But it's what we do about it where Christians will be different. Because... I think, I'm convinced from what God says about our bodies, that when there is a a divergence between how I feel and what my body is, my biology and and my psychology, it's my body that I need to align with. I need to try and help my feelings fit with the biology rather than change the biology, have some surgery or something, to try and fit it with my psychology. Now, for some of us, that will be a difficult thing to wrestle through with. Others of us, we, we don't care. But can I say, if it is difficult for you, please don't give up. Please don't think you're just left with a life that is forever going to be completely broken. 
I can guarantee this, in the resurrection it won't be. It will be fully harmonised and aligned and you'll feel fully yourself as that resurrected person, as a man or a woman. But that still leaves us with a huge question about who I am. Am I that nice person or the nasty person? The honest or the deceitful? Because I do both. And when I do each, I'm sort of following my heart. I'm being true to myself, but they're quite different. I want to start by going back to the passage that we looked at yesterday morning in Ephesians chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, you might like to go back there. Uh, If you're slow, then some of the passages will come up uh, on the screen. Remember in Ephesians 1, we saw that Paul prayed that the Ephesians would know the extraordinary power of God that raised Jesus and installed him as the Lord of all. And as Paul prays that, he doesn't pray that they will experience that power because he knows they've already experienced it. He prays that they'll come to know and understand, to comprehend and be confident of what that power has already done in and for them. And he explains the way that power has been at work in them in chapter 2. His main thesis is, you have already been raised and made alive. The same power that raised Jesus has raised you. Just like it raised Christ, it has raised you. He starts by saying, you were dead. Just a pretty bald statement, isn't it? Throws it in your face. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts, captive to Satan, the world, and our own sinful desires. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. He said we were dead. Now, the most obvious thing about dead people and dead things is what they can't do, isn't it? If you're dead, you can't dance. If you're dead, you can't hear. If you're dead, you can't text somebody. You can't do, well, what can't you do? Everything. Spiritually dead people can't do things. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. Uh, The sinful mind is hostile to God, doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. They can't submit to God. They can't in their hearts please God. I remember talking to a high school class once. Um, It was a sort of scripture lesson, and like most scripture lessons, none of the kids wanted to be there or listen to anything I said. And we we read a bit of John chapter 6, and one of the verses in John 6, Jesus says, No one can come uh, to me unless the Father draws them. And we sort of read that and nothing happened for it. And then one of the kids put his hand up and said, What? Are you saying I can't become a Christian unless God does it? I said, Yeah, that seems to be what Jesus is saying, doesn't it? He said, Rubbish. I can become a Christian anytime I want to. I said, Prove it. He said, I don't want to. That's the problem, isn't it? I don't want to. I'm dead. I was dead. And many of you know that personally, don't you? You sat in in youth groups and churches. You heard about Jesus again and again and again, about his love for you, about your need for him. And it was like water off a duck's back. Again and again and again. And then something changed. 
and you took it seriously and you thought that was for me and your life changed you experienced resurrection god made you alive jesus calls it being born again by the holy spirit it is the work of the spirit and notice in ephesians 2 he goes on to say in verse 4 because of his great mercy for us god who is rich in mercy made us alive with christ even when we were dead in transgressions and sins. Our resurrection, this resurrection, is with Christ. It's not independent of Christ's resurrection. A helpful way to think about it, if you come with me, is this. Remember Martha. Jesus has that conversation with her, and she says, I know that Lazarus will be resurrected on the last day at the resurrection. And this was the expectation created by the prophets, the promises of God through the Old Testament, that one day God would resurrect all people in the general resurrection. But then comes Jesus' resurrection. That is, what God had promised would happen at the end, God brings one of those resurrections forward in time. The resurrection of his own son, the defeat and victory over death and Satan and evil. And that, he calls that the first fruits, the beginning of the resurrection. It kick-started the release of resurrection power into our world. And what happened when you became a Christian, if you're a Christian? You were raised. You started a new life. And God has been raising dead people all over the world ever since the time of Jesus. Think, what's God been doing? Well, he raised Jesus. Did he then just sort of sit back and have a rest? It took so much. As, as we saw, it was hard for him to do it. Did, did he then have a holiday for 2,000 years? No. He's been resurrecting people using that same power in Perth, in my suburb, in yours, in, in, in uh, Caratha, uh, in uh, Argentina, in every part of this world ever since. He's raising us spiritually. The inner person has been raised so that we can do what we couldn't do before. We can trust Jesus. We can obey God and please God. And that is by grace. God does the work. We, we don't. We can't raise ourselves. We're dead. Uh, in his loving mercy to sinful people like us, he raises us to life. So who am I? Well, if you're a Christian, this is who you are. You've started a new life. You've been changed at the core of your being. You're now alive. Not just a new name, but a whole new nature. That's who you are. So let's go to Colossians 3, which is the passage that Moo read for us. We'll start to see how this works out in practice. Colossians 3, verse 1. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. It just summarises what we've said in the last 10 minutes in one, one little line. You've been raised with Christ. Do what? Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life, your real life, is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When will that happen? Well, that's our resurrection, isn't it? When Christ appears, that's what we're looking forward to. And he's saying, in essence, that is the real you. At the moment, the real you is hidden. So if you look around this room, you can't tell who have been made alive, can you? They don't have halos behind their heads. They don't have this sort of aura. They just look like you and me. But one day, 
who they are, who you are, will be revealed for all to see. Because on that day, you'll be resurrected in glory. You'll be just like Christ. You'll be stunning. And we will see that that's always been you since you became a Christian. That's the life you started when God made you alive. And your resurrection is just the completion of that, the fulfillment of that. You have a resurrection now, which guarantees the resurrection to come. And when the resurrection to come happens, it'll be clear to the whole world who you are today. You are somebody raised with Christ. He says your old life has died. That's sort of graphic language, isn't it? Because most of you haven't been buried in a cemetery yet. How did your life die? You, you died. Well, just think about that life before you were a Christian, if, if that's something that you can actually recall, because you became a Christian at a certain time. You were living for yourself. You were a slave to your cravings. Remember those times you said, I don't know why I did that, but it's like I, I couldn't help doing it. No one made me do it. I, I just did it, but I wish I hadn't done it. We were slaves like that. And Paul says that life died. It actually died in two ways. So let me explain if I can. It died when Christ died. You see, God looks at my life and he rightly sentences me to death. Because that's what my life deserves, doesn't it? Absolutely, that's what my life deserves. And what happened to that sentence? You've got to say, oh, forget it. It'll be okay. I'll, I'll, I'll try and wipe it from the memory bank. No. God carried out that execution fully, completely, on a hill outside Jerusalem in the year 30 AD. When Christ died, I died. I was executed. That life I was living was given its due deserts. And what a wonderful thing that that has happened. Because it means I don't have to pay those due deserts in the future. But it also died in a second way. Because when God made me alive, when I consciously repented of that life of envy and lying and hating, when I recognised the evil of living for myself, and I said, I don't want to live that way anymore. Jesus, please rule my life. That old life died again, didn't it? I finished that life. And God raised me to start a new life in the kingdom of Jesus under his grace day by day by day. That resurrection life, that life after life after death, doesn't simply start when Jesus returns. It's already started in this life here and now. And this new life I've started is not a temporary thing. It's not just something I'll do for a little while while I feel like it. No, it won't even be stopped by my death because I'll be resurrected to live that life eternally. It's hidden till Christ's return, but it will be seen then. And forever I will live this life I've started in the age to come. And in Colossians 3, he talks about that life as being renewed in the image, in the, sorry, renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator, verse 10. That is, God continues to work in me with his power, to renew me, to, to make me more like God who made me in the image of his creator. We were created in God's image, we'll be returned to his image to be glorious people. And that is going on at the moment. My body is not yet being renewed, but my nature is being renewed. I have a new nature, 
raised to life, and that nature is being renewed and renovated so that when the resurrection comes, it will fit that new body. Well, if you go to verse 12, notice how Paul addresses the Colossian Christians. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, etc., Notice he says, you are these things. You are chosen. You are holy. You are dearly loved. He doesn't say, listen, if you try hard enough today, God might love you a little bit more. He doesn't say, if you can cleanse yourself of all that impurity and scour all the envy out of you, then you'll be holy. No, he says, you are holy. God's already set you apart. Do you see how that works? See, what God uses is not deficit motivation. He doesn't say, try and become what you aren't. Work really hard, try harder, and if you try hard enough, you might get far enough that you'll be acceptable to me. No, because of Jesus, he accepts us. He has made us alive. He He loved us. He has made us holy. And so it's sort of fullness motivation. Be what you already are, not become what you're not, which is a much more helpful way to be and to think. And it's true as well. Be what you are. What we are is hidden for the moment. You may be confused and unsure about who you are. Others may typecast you in a particular role that might have come from your old life. But one day, at the resurrection of Jesus... On the day of Christ, it'll be clear who you really are and who you have been. Most of you have had the experience of Year 12 balls, haven't you? Let me try and illustrate it from that. One of the, the incredible things that happens with Year 12 balls is that you see people in a new light, don't you? You know that, that geek you hardly had any time for? And they put on a tux, they turn up at the school ball and you think... Man, is that who they are? I'd never have guessed. Or the girl puts on the, on the dress, you know, the, the, the really nice dress. And even without the makeup, you think, I didn't realise there was such a beauty in that person. Now, the ball is like the day of resurrection. Okay? The day of resurrection, you will see people for what they really are. But at the ball, what you recognise is that they were that already, weren't they? It's just that you hadn't seen it. You hadn't recognised that that's truly who they were. Well, God has made you that person. So if you look at the arrow, who am I really? Well, I'm that person who's going to be resurrected. And I've already been raised to life. That is my true life now, the, the top line, not the bottom line. That's my old life that died. And so live the new life. Or if you like ball dresses, they're, they're the beauties. Okay. Now let's move on to living the new life. Do you see what Paul's saying in Colossians 1? The real you is that new you, so live that new life. Be the real you. And in verses 5 to 9, he talks about what that means for your old life. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, your old life, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. 
But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. See what he's saying? You know that old life that's still hanging around? You, you sort of thought you could get rid of it just by saying, that's my old life, but it hasn't disappeared. That old life, those old ways, they sort of hang around like comfortable trackies. Those old habits, well, they died, but they still seem to exert some influence on me. That sexual immorality, that greed, that anger, that malice, that slander, that, that lying. And we live that way, many of us, for so long, it sort of feels like the real me. I almost feel more comfortable living that way. And sometimes it even just feels inevitable. I can't do anything but live that way. Paul says, that's not you. Not anymore. So kill it. Notice in the first list in verse 5 and 6, there's a focus on sex. Now, some people say Christians are obsessed with sex, and it does come up a fair bit in passages like this, but it's helpful to recognise that in the culture Paul wrote in, that culture was obsessed with sex. And the Christian understanding of sexuality was so countercultural, was so weird in that culture, that it was something that Christians really struggled with, because a Christian understanding of sex is it's a beautiful gift from God, to be used within the bounds of a marriage commitment and not outside it. And within that, it does what it's supposed to do. It binds two people together in mutual love and self-giving and intimacy. And children can be born within security of that situation. And that's the beauty with which God designed sex. But in that culture, that was just crazy. To think of sex like that was like putting yourself in prison. And so Paul's got to, got to raise the issue. He says, don't be like the culture around you. That, that's your old life. You did live that way in sexual immorality, in impurity, in lust and evil desires. They're all to do with sex. And we live in a similar sex-obsessed culture, don't we? Our identity is so much sexual. Porn has exploded uh, in the internet age to be something that most guys are addicted to. It's, it's a terrible thing. It's, it's sex used for all the wrong reasons and it damages everyone involved. And Paul says, kill it. The language he uses is actually violent. He doesn't say, listen, try and work out a compromise with it. You know, you can coexist together if you can just work out something that, that both of you are comfortable with and, and that'll be fine for a while. No, he says, kill it. Get the knife out and butcher it. Put it to death. Because your old life has died. Or in verses 8 and 9, it moves from that sort of sexual area of life to our social relationships. Uh, It talks about um, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, not lying to each other. For most of our culture, lying is just normal, isn't it? I don't mean we're always telling untruths, but whenever it's convenient, we'll tell an untruth. Whenever it'll give us a a better image with others, we'll we'll stretch the truth and tell a bit of a lie. Whenever there's any advantage to us, we'll doctor our CV and make it look better than it really is. It's just the culture, isn't it? It's your old life, says Paul. So take it off. Get get rid of it. That's not the real you. That's not what God is like. So if God says something, you can take it to the bank. 
you can trust it completely because God is trustworthy. And you wouldn't want it any other way, would you? Then God tells the truth day in and day out. It's beautiful when people do it. You, you see the effect of anger and rage and slander. You just see what happens on Facebook and the other social media as people j- just take others down. It's horrible, isn't it? Who wants to be part of that? So often we're sucked into it, but that's the old life. That, that's not you. That's not the true you. So he uses this language of, of take it off. Just, you know, like those clothes, those who played soccer yesterday, at the end of the soccer game, the clothes you were wearing were wet, muddy, and stank to high heaven. Just take them off. Put on some new clothes. Well, take off that old life. But don't keep wearing it around. Don't go back to the cupboard and pull it out and say, oh, just for sentimental value, I'd like to wear this today. No, throw it out and put on new clothes. Like verse 12, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. See how opposite that is to the anger, rage, slander? It's just a different world, isn't it? Compassion. To be able to put yourself into the shoes of others and feel their difficulties and pains and sympathise with them, be encouraging to them. Kindness, seeing ways that you might contribute to others and and getting in and doing it, whether it's something major or something minor, tying up their shoelaces to buying them a car, just be kind. Gentle, patient, bearing with each other, forgiving, as the Lord has forgiven you in Christ. It's worth stopping and thinking how God has forgiven us in Christ, isn't it? Was it easy? Because, oh, no, it doesn't really bother me, actually. Just carry on if you like and I'll forget it. No. Forgiveness is incredibly difficult. If you've been hurt deeply, you'll know how hard it is to forgive. Because every time you see that person, those feelings just rise up again, don't they? I want to get back at them. They shouldn't have done that to me. You can't just suppress that by clicking your fingers. Now, it's an ongoing decision like God's is, at great cost to you, as it was to God for your forgiveness, the death of his own son. Forgiveness is very difficult, but it's wonderful, isn't it? When, when a relationship that has been totally ruptured and there's no future for it is, is brought back together because forgiveness is given. It's beautiful, but it's not easy. But this is the new life. It's a life of forgiveness. Or verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish another with all wisdom. Don't use your mouth to tell lies just to boost yourself. No, be so filled with the word of Christ, the, the message of the gospel, the truth of it and the richness of it, that it just overflows out of your mouth in your conversations and even in your singing. You can't help but burst into song whenever you're with other Christians, like you've just done tonight, encouraging them about Christ telling them again that they're loved deeply, that they've started a new life because Christ's resurrection has raised them to new life. Let's live this together with gratitude in your hearts to God because he is the source of all of it, isn't he? That is such a different life. And one of the wonderful things, I think, is that at NYC we can sort of pull it off. We enjoy that sort of life, don't we, the kindness. People volunteering to go and do wash-up. People caring for each other in the small groups. I've loved seeing that happen. But it can't just be here that we live that new life, can it? 
If it's the real me, it's going to flow over to everywhere and everything. How am I going to keep doing it? We'll go back to verses 1 to 4. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. It's where you set your hearts, where you set your mind. That is going to make the difference. Look up, look forward to who you really are that will be revealed at the resurrection. And so set your hearts on that life, the life that God has given you when he raised you to life. Be who you really are. For a few years, I was visiting a country in West Africa called Liberia. They just had 15 years of civil war when I was visiting. I I went regularly for a couple of years. I got to know some of the people there. And some of them told me stories of the time of civil war. And let me tell you, civil war is the worst thing in the world. Because you don't know who to trust. (laughs) Your former neighbours, even your family, might be the ones who are going to shoot you and kill you. How do you live in a society under civil war? It's, It's horrendous. And both sides had guns, both sides had mortars. It it really was. And it went for 15 years, on and on and on. I remember meeting a a, a pastor, and he told me that um, during the time of the Civil War, the first thing he did was he just left his village, and he went and lived in the jungle for more than six months. There was no food. He just ate grass. He, he He lived with the clothes that he left home in. He was too afraid to go into any village because he didn't know whether to trust people or not whether they'd shoot him or welcome him and feed him. He he didn't know. And and so he just lived out in the jungle. Eventually, he found his way to a next-door country. He managed to get to a refugee camp. A few years later, some of them, not him, but some of the others in that situation, were resettled in places like Australia. At the end of the war, he was totally emaciated. He had one set of rags he lived in. And psychologically, he was burnt to a crisp. He was just a shattered man. Now imagine, I don't know, you're camping out the back of Kalgoorlie one day, out in the bush there, out in the scrub, and you come across a Liberian. And there he is, still in his rags. And there he is, emaciated, absolutely petrified of anybody. As soon as he sees you, he runs off and hides. You finally get to him. What are you going to say to him in that sort of situation? Tell you what I'd want to say to him. I'd want to say, you're not in Liberia anymore. Just throw those old clothes away. Let's go into town, get some tucker, buy some new clothes. Come on, you're in Australia now. It's not like Liberia. It's a new life. Come and live this new life. You don't have to live like you used to live. Be true to who you are now. You're in Australia. You're an Australian. So I'm not going to say to him, oh, listen, if you want to live like a Liberian, just go back there. What does God say to us? You've started a new life. Throw off the old one, burn those clothes, kill those practices. Let's live this new life. So how do we live as a Christian? I want to suggest, and I know this is a bit risky, how to live as a Christian is to be true to yourself. Now, in Hollywood rom-coms, that's a very dangerous thing to say because it justifies... Uh, falling into lust and much, much more. But if you know who you really are as a Christian person, then being true to yourself is how to live as a Christian. 
because there is a new you. Not, not the old you, a new you. You've been raised with Christ. You have started already a new life that goes on forever and ever and ever. The new permanent you. At the moment, the experience of all Christians is that I've still got some of that old me and I've got the new me and they're both there and they're both clamouring for, for my energy and my attention. And I'm trying to work out, will I be an honest person or a dishonest? Will I be stingy or will I be generous? Which of those lives am I going to live? Which is the true me and the real me? Well, the real you is the new one. It's taken over from the old. It's not just that you've had an external makeover and if I cut you, you still bleed the old life. No, you've had a change of nature. You'll start to bleed that new life more and more again because God has raised you with the same power that raised Jesus. I can now please God, not not perfectly, but genuinely. God doesn't say to dead people, behave like alive people, behave like good people. That's sort of like trying to say, you're a square, behave like a circle. You, you, You can't do it. No, he makes us alive. Then he says, live like people who are alive. Which means that all of us have a choice. It's a sort of macro choice and it's a micro choice, a a choice again and again and again. But it's a real choice. Which life will I live? Will I live that old life that died? That is going to finally fully die when my body dies. A, A life that has no future whatsoever. Or will I live the new life that's started by God's action, that's permanent, that is my destiny and my future? It's that macro question, which one will I choose? And if I choose one, I need to choose it all the place, all over life, at home, at uni, with my mates. I can't switch between one and the other because that really is to be inauthentic, isn't it? Now, as you look back, My guess is that many of you have made that choice even many times. You've said, yes, God, I want to live this new life. Thank you for it. That's who I am. That's who I want to be. Please help me to live it. Some of us have sort of wavered. We've we've had a foot in both camps. We've wanted to be this and this, both at the same time, or we've slid between one and the other, sort of like a me on ice skates. The old just seems to have this hold on us that we can't break. Now, whichever you are, if you're a Christian, tonight is a time to decide again. Which life will you live? As you walk out of here, who is it? Is it the real you or is it the old you, the decrepit you, the discarded you? Which life will you live I urge you to embrace who you really are, a child of God, redeemed, made alive, given eternal life, will be resurrected one day to brilliant, awesome, glorious life. But which life will you live now? I want to give you a moment to answer that question between you and God. You know what the choice is, don't you? It's a choice as to what life you're going to live. Uh, uh, In a sense, it doesn't matter what choices you made in the past because today is a day to make the choice again and to make it clearly what you will be from today onwards, God being your help. I'm going to give you just a minute for you to talk to your Lord and God and tell him 
how you will live, which life you will choose. I feel a bit awkward at this point because I sort of, it's almost like you've got a choice but you've got no choice, isn't it? But you, you've told God what you're choosing. If you've chosen to live this new life, if you've chosen to be true to yourself, how will you do it? How will you keep it up tomorrow and the day after and the week after and the year after? It's by knowing who you truly are, that you've been raised with Christ. Apparently when Prince William was young, his nanny used to say to him every morning, Prince William, remember who you are. She thought that would have an effect on him. I think it probably has. One of my heroes, J.I. Packer, Jim Packer, who died last year, he says in one of his books, I tell myself every morning, Jim Packer, you are a child of God. God is your father. Heaven is your home. Every day is one day nearer. See what he's doing? He's telling himself, reminding himself who he really is so that he can live true to himself. Well, let me give you something that you might say to yourself every morning. I'm a child of God. God is my loving father. Resurrection is my sure destiny. And I've already been made alive with Christ. Let me say that again. I'm a child of God. God is my loving father. Resurrection is my sure destiny. I've already been made alive with Christ. That's who you are. That's who I am. Let's keep reminding ourselves so that we can live this new life that God has raised us for. Amen.